The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. Until a quieter last decade spent largely in New York, reads the obituary, he combined fertility and versatility with a reluctant role as a writer-celebrity who epitomized literary fame in an age of glitz, hype, and frenzied prurience. Keystone novels of the 1980s and 90s, such as Money, London Fields, and The Information, channeled the raucous urges of their time and kick against them in dismay. End quote. His name was Martin Amos, the son half of the famous father-son writer duo that dominated the British writing scene for a half a century. Loved and loathed, Martin Amos was imitated by as many as he irritated. He was also, for a time, the go-to writer for certain young literary types, including a pair of eager readers named Jack Wilson and Mike Palindrome. As we say farewell to Martin Amos, who died earlier this summer, we reflect on his impact, his legacy, his books, his presence, and his absence. Mike Palindrome joins me for a discussion of Martin Amos, writer with a capital W, today on the History of Literature. Okay, okay, here we go. Hello, hello. Hello, my apologies, first of all. Well, first of all, welcome to the podcast, my friends. I'm glad you're here. Secondly, my apologies for those of you who joined expecting a little Giorgio Vasari. We'll have to save our trip to Renaissance Italy and the art world and the art biography world for the future. The truth is, I got so bogged down in the research for that one, it's taking me a little while to dig my way out. And it's been a while since Mike's been here, so we'll... Run this one instead, a tribute, a reflection that we recorded. I know Amos is not everyone's cup of tea, and I'm bending my rule about sticking to literature that's 50 years old or longer, but his role as a writer, a public figure, a celebrity hyphen writer is hard to deny. I'm not sure his books are my cup of tea, not anymore, but a few of them are, and they definitely, definitely were. Boy, they were not just my cup of tea. They were more like life-sustaining milk baby formula, which I took to like a starving infant, drank it deep, and asked for more. Cried when I didn't get it. I am Jack Wilson, by the way. Did I say that yet? Your humble podcast host. And I know, I know people wonder how it is that I can be so humble with such a a runaway success as the History of Literature podcast, sending me to the stars, <laughs> hobnobbing with the hoi polloi up there in the firm. You'd think I'd be less humble. Hmm, wouldn't you? 
one might think that humility would be an impossibility. Well, I have help. I have a lot of help. <laughs> people on Twitter, people who email. And here's a story from my life that will give you a taste of the kind of help I have. So I was in the car with my 16-year-old son, and somehow or other, we got on the topic of students, his classmates, his peers, and and the grades they get, and who gets what grades, and who's smart, who's good in school, and so on. That was kind of the general topic. And I wanted to make the point that grades, while important and something to strive for, are not everything. They're not necessarily the best predictor of success. And we had been talking about someone who skipped a grade, and I had a story all teed up for my son. In my mind, the story was going to be how I was in a split classroom when I was in third grade. Half the class was third graders and half was fourth graders. And after a few weeks of class, the teacher had me slide my desk over and sit with the fourth graders for all of the academic subjects. And at the end of the school year, I got my report card and there's a part on the report cards that we used to get that would say, I will be in grade blank next year. And the teacher would fill that in. And I had already gone through this a couple of times, first grade and second grade. It always thrilled me a little because it made me look ahead to the following year. As someone wrapping up first grade, you think, oh, wow, second grade. Look at that, too amazing. I'll be that old, that big, that mature, that important in this place. Just one summer and then big shot, big shot time. <laughs> and I also thought, imagine if that blank didn't have a two. Imagine if it just had a one, if that was how they told you. No, I will not be in grade two next year. I'll be in grade one. What a heartbreak that would be. So so you see the two as a first grader and you feel the thrill of what's to come, but also the thrill of having avoided disappointment, crushing blow, averted. So that year when I was in that split classroom, my third grade teacher had written on my final report card, I will be in grade five next year. And then she had crossed out the five and wrote, Four. And so I took the report card up to her and I, I pointed at it and I said, well, oh, what was this? And she said, oh, yes, Jack, I made a mistake on yours. I'm sorry about that. It was, it was sort of a slip of the pen. And I nodded. Oh, OK, got it. Sounds good. Meant to write four, wrote five. I'll be in grade four next year, as expected. And then she said, I thought about it, though. And I nodded again, stunned into silence because I wasn't expecting that, that I was even close, that she had thought about it. She had thought about just launching me over fourth grade into fifth grade. And then she said, I didn't think it would be right for you emotionally. And I learned throughout the years that this was a, a key, a, a pivotal point. This was an, uh, an important point in a decision like that. This wasn't the time for me to skip a grade. I wasn't a 16-year-old who was burned out or bored out of my skull by, by high school and ready for college a year early, someone who, who would thrive by 
by snipping off the end of their high school education. I wasn't a super genius with a world waiting for my talents to be cultivated who needed that kind of acceleration so I could get to the real work that I was destined for, tackling the problems of, of space travel or finding a cure for cancer. I was just a kid, happy enough, enjoying my life on the playground and in the classroom. And although she had seen that I could do the work that the fourth graders were doing because I had actually been doing it, she had not seen that I would fit right in with all of them as a fifth grader, that I would thrive there. I was still having fun with my, my actual classmates, my age group classmates. I didn't need to be a small, young fifth grader. I needed to be a, an average-sized and aged fourth grader. That was what was best for me, the right emotional fit, the right place, the right level, with an emphasis on on balance, on life balance, friends, and sports, and other activities. And there was more to life than saying, okay, you can do your times tables. Fifth grade, here you come. Fourth grade will be a good place for you to grow next year. So I have this whole story teed up in my mind. What I just told you, I was going to tell my 16-year-old, and he was a captive audience here in the car. Time for dad to make his dad points. And our conversation goes like this. I start out by saying, you know, I almost skipped a grade once. And my son cut me off and said, backwards. (laughs) Backwards. As if I finished third grade and my performance had been so poor that I would go in reverse and not just get held back, but skip an entire grade back as if I'd get that report card at the end of third grade. And instead of seeing I will be in grade four next year, it would say I will be in grade one backwards. <laughs> I, I've got advanced degrees. I've worked so hard to improve myself. I've been learning longer than he's been alive. And yet, this is how I am seen and regarded in my household. A figure of fun, a cartoon, comic relief for the sarcastic 16-year-old. So when I say I am your humble podcast host, you can thank him. Every time I think I'm moving forward, I hear that voice in my head. The podcast is seeing a lot of movement, family. Huh. Is the movement backwards? Okay. Martin Amos. Today, 15 novels. That's the literary legacy. His books of essays, his criticism, his short stories... That's all part of it, too, but his reputation will ultimately rise or fall on the novels that he wrote. I think that's how he would want it. He was a believer in novels. That's what he poured his soul into. What he probably wouldn't want to hear, as many have said since his passing of esophageal cancer at the age of 73, is that his presence on the literary scene kind of overshadowed his actual books. He famously didn't win England's biggest prizes, and yet he may have been England's most famous writer of literary fiction. He was 
the kind of guy who would show up with a quote, a quip, an interview, with a novel nearly always on the sales shelf or on the way. His novels were an event when they came out, especially in the 90s. Mike and I are going to talk about that, that buzziness of Martin Amos and how it affected us in America. Amos's prose is is worthy. That's the thing. When you get it in those small doses of a, a short essay or an interview or a blurb he's writing, it's kind of unmatched. It's too gaudy for some. And he's criticized for that in his novels sometimes. But there's no question that as a stylist, he's up there with with Bellow and Nabokov and Updike, the sort of pyrotechnical stylists. Salman Rushdie. These are people whose prose is ornate, sparking with life, rich with observation, highly intelligent. It can take you a while to realize that the story underneath is sagging a bit because the prose is so dazzling. It's kind of like Las Vegas. The spectacle powers the night. But if it was only style, I wouldn't have had the kind of respect and appreciation for Amos that I had and have. He had another very winning side to him, which, well, he had a couple. He had a, I mean, he had many, let's say, many appealing qualities as well. But the ones that I liked the most, I liked when he talked about his father and his father as a writer and some of the other writers that he admired. I really liked his love for literature. In one of his essays, he was talking about the world going gaga for period pieces. This was in the 90s when they, how the world loves upper crust movies of manners. And he talked about going to see four weddings and a funeral with Salman Rushdie. And he and Rushdie sort of had fun excoriating the film after it was over. And then Amos and the essay mocks all the adaptations of Jane Austen that were coming into being, along with all the the recipe books and tea towels and, and touristy kinds of accoutrement to Jane Land. And he describes the books, Jane Austen's books, and he breaks them down into their formulas. He once called them six samey novels in a different essay. He's like the smartest kid in the class, in English class, who sits in the literature class, who sits in the back row with a sneer, coughing out a laugh as the sweaty professor tries to hold the class's attention. Suddenly, the professor's aware that everyone else in the class is, has kind of turned around and is more interested in, in hearing the opinions of the one who's jeering at him, the one who's seen through it all, who's knowing and clever, and here to puncture whatever, buttle, bubble, whatever bubbles of pretension have inserted themselves into the literary drink. This is Amos in his leather jacket, that bad boy of London on the scene, smirking along with his famous pals like Rushdie and Julian Barnes before they're falling out. And above all, the Hitch. <laughs> Christopher Hitchens. Read it as they were. He talks about taking a car trip with the Hitch, that kind of thing. But then, and that, you know, I... I Enjoy it because I like reading Martin Amos, but still kind of, kind of uh, not, (laughs) 
kind of raised my eyebrow as well. But then there's this guy, the guy who writes things like this. This is that essay I was talking about where he was talking about the the wave of Jane Austen adaptations that was crashing onto the shore of popular culture. So he says, quote, This autumn, as the new serial got into its stride, distressed viewers rang up the BBC in tears, pleading for the assurance that fate would smile on the star-crossed pair and that all would yet be well. I was not among these callers, but I sympathized, and I quite understood why the Pride and Prejudice video, released midway through the run, sold out in two hours. When I was introduced to the novel at the age of 15, I read 20 pages and then besieged my stepmother's study until she told me what I needed to know. I needed to know that Darcy married Elizabeth. I needed to know that Bingley married Jane. I needed this information as badly as I had ever needed anything. Pride and prejudice suckers you. Amazingly, and I believe uniquely, it goes on suckering you. Even now, as I open the book, I feel the same tizzy of unsatisfied expectation, despite five or six rereadings. How can this be when the genre itself guarantees consummation? The simple answer is that these lovers really are made for each other, by their creator. They are constructed for each other, interlocked for wedlock. Their marriage has to be. End quote. Amos goes on for a few more pages talking about pride and prejudice, and pride, sorry, pride and prejudice. And then he says, quote, and I would go on indefinitely, but I'm loath to abuse the reader's patience. A deep immersion in Jane Austen tends to transform me into something of a Regency purist. Indeed, I start to find that her rhythms are entirely displacing my own. Normal social intercourse becomes increasingly strained and long-winded. If, for example, the editress had called, hoping for news of the near completion of this piece, I would have been like to reply, Nay, madam, I find I get on exceedingly ill. I need more sequestration with Miss Jane. May I extort, therefore, the indulgence of a further senite? This is, of course, anachronistic of me, and Jane Austen is not, and will never be, an anachronism. End quote. Amos might be an anachronism, or parts of him anyway, might be one now or, or headed for it. He's rooted in his era. The prose style and particular concerns might be locked in, just as Jane's language and milieu might lock her into Regency England, and I'm not sure whether his novels will have the lift that hers do to get him out of that time period, into the world of the universal. He'll be studied by anyone interested in the literature of the 1980s and 90s. I'm sure he'll have hardcore devotees. A hundred years from now, he might be devoured by a specialist in the era, even if he's not mass-consumed. Austin was not anachronistic because of what she wrote about. She was writing about these couples and the human psychology of them, the nature of the two of them, Two young lovers, two people made for each other who experience obstacles. It's a timeless topic. I'm not sure if Amos has that in his books, but 
the spirit that he brought to writing as someone who lived for books and lived through books and devoted himself to them. You could say the same about words. He lived for words and lived through words and devoted himself to words. And who, when he sat down to write, made sentence after sentence as as twisting and sharp and surprising and as fun, as good on the ear, as balanced, that spirit of his devotion to his prose isn't anachronistic. It's what I'll remember best about him and what I'll miss the most. And when I return to Amos, it's what I will seek. Okay, so hopefully I didn't step all over this talk I had with Mike a few weeks ago. (laughs) You'll hear the two of us wrestling with our past as we remember first discovering Amos, first enjoying him, that rush in the 1990s, and what we've read since then and how we think of him, what we're planning to read. Martin Amos, may he rest in peace. Mike Palindrome, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, president of the Literature Supporters Club, located in New York's borough of Manhattan. He's here today to discuss the life and works of the recently departed Martin Amos. May he rest in peace. Mike, welcome to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So what entered your mind when you heard that Martin Amos had died? I had three separate reactions. Mm-hmm. The, the first was I wanted to drop everything I'm reading. I'm reading a bunch of things, and mm-hmm. I, I wanted to reread London Fields, mm. which it would be my my third time just to see how it held up. And uh, my second reaction was just feeling like he had kind of died for me already. Mm-hmm. I, I <laughs> the the last book of his I read was The Pregnant Widow in 2010, mm. and 
I went to a book signing. At, at that time, he had moved to Brooklyn. Uh, the book reading signing was on the Brooklyn waterfront, and it was sold out. It was just a throng of people, and it was along the water. And you know, you can canoe along the water, and there were people who, in canoes who had paused to see what was going on. And when Amos was reading, they a bunch of canoes just rested behind him to listen. Hmm. I mean, it was just, you know, it was a great reading. But then when I went home and I read the book, I was like, there were some flashes of brilliance, but it, it felt kind of not relevant anymore. And hmm. I felt like I was free of him, you know, the way you're free of bands. You know, you don't have to buy the latest album. Right, right. Because, yeah, there was a time where he was kind of the it boy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in the, I guess, maybe I'd say early to mid 90s, where a book would come out and I would buy it in hardcover, you know, mm. and, and it would be, I viewed him as a real favorite among contemporary writers. And then same thing happened for me, he kind of faded. And one of the interesting things about reading all of the obituaries, and all of the commentary pieces and everything is seeing that in the UK, I think he didn't fade in the same way where Mm-hmm. He was a public figure who was, he was sort of the go-to person for quotes when someone would die or when oh, yeah. there was a, he was asked for his opinion on, on tennis and, you know, everything. And it sounds like he was viewed as kind of inescapable and, and maybe sort of resented and kind of a, we love to hate him kind of thing. And for us, it really felt like in America it was the last 10 or 15 years, you'd see that a book of his came out, but there there was no, it didn't feel obligatory or there was no rush to go read it. That was kind of, he had kind of faded from view the last decade or so. I agree with you, but he, but he also talks about the difference between America and, and England because he, he started to spend a lot of time in America. He was yeah. just saying, he has this interview where he says that Americans aren't witty because they have a problem with superiority. Yeah. And in order to show wit, you have to think you're better than the other person. And Americans don't like to publicly do that. And I, I felt like that he could opine on something like that culturally. You're right. In England, they would ask him on his opinion on so many things. And not only was he not asked in the U.S., I'm not sure there was an equivalent writer in the U.S. who was asked about his opinion. It was, I think, almost like what's happening now is really, you know, celebrities who are politically active Mm -hmm. are starting to fill that cultural gap that maybe writers did in the past. But it was interesting to hear the old interviews with him because the BBC would reach out, the New Statesman would reach out, and they, they always loved to get a quote from him about literature and nowadays sadly writers are not asked yeah right (laughs) right literature serves kind of a different function now i think there's less of a a sense of a novel being an event and important and more about that novels and poetry are there to sort of teach us about identity of people you know they're there for individuals yeah. to tell their story or to express themselves or to write about a, a niche and that there isn't a kind of like for example here norman mailer 
or Gore Vidal or mm-hmm. people like that would be gone to ask their opinion about politics or about the culture or about something else. And and we don't really have that anymore, I don't think. It's more, um, you know, <laughs> I guess people go to newspaper columnists or or other kinds of pundits or other uh you know business people there's there's just more people that would be on the reporter's speed dial in order to get uh, uh a good quote the other thing though about Amos is that he always delivered a great quote you know, oh yeah he he yeah. you could imagine why people would go to him because it's like well this is gold you know it's going to summarize my article for me or it's going to crystallize a particular point of view in a way that is very entertaining and clever and uh, he, it'll get the job done. Yeah. I mean, that Letterman clip you sent me, I mean, when he, Letterman asks like, how are things going in England and Amos deadpans? It's there. It's still there. England is there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you said something that I wanted to pick up on, which is his view of wit because he seemed to think, like he seemed to define wit in that particular way and then seemed to say Americans aren't good at it. They don't get it or they can't do it. But I just disagree with his conception of wit. And it's one of the things that, that made me realize I had sort of outgrown him when mm-hmm. he, he wrote an article where he was talking about four uh, times when Christopher Hitchens had expressed his brilliant wit. And four I, times. <laughs> yeah. Well, these these are the four examples that I would give, you know, uh-huh. like the best examples or or four anecdotes to show you how witty Christopher Hitchens was. And I think Christopher Hitchens was very witty and I've seen him, but I I would have chosen four different ones and I realized all four of the ones that Amos had chosen were about that uh they were just put-downs basically. They were times where someone would say something and then Hitchens would would skewer them. And it wasn't, it, 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 it was more, it felt more like punching down and yeah. it felt like, oh, so you're superior, but, but uh, why should I care? You know, why should I care that you got off this great zinger and you took this uh, person on the street and, <laughs> you know, and knocked them down a few pegs or something. And there, it was kind of a, um, it kind of made me realize Amos, one of the things that always, or eventually began to, uh, I, I began to sour on was that he, mm-hmm. there was this feeling of, well, we're in the club and you probably want to be in this club too, but you probably aren't good enough to make it into this club. And the club is me and, and, and Ian McEwen and Hitchens and, and a bunch of our pals. And it, it right. very much like Kingsley Amos had with Philip Larkin, if you read those letters of, you know, we're listening to the right music and we're reading the right books and we know what's cool and what's not. And look at all these people around us who are, uh, you know, adrift. And sometimes it's look at these look at these upper class toffs who are who aren't as bohemian and as cool and as literary as we are. But a lot of times it's just look at these people on the street who are dumb or, you know, <laughs> look at this person on TV who you know, thinks that um, such and such book is great literature and doesn't realize that the real literature is found in this other. It I don't know. It just kind of made me realize. Well, why are you spending all your time on this? Why are you, why why are you so eager to be exclusive 
and to to praise one another for your insults of others. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, the very negative qualities you're talking about are very attractive to a 20-year-old. Right. You know, and um, yeah, I mean, you're right about kind of growing old and, you know, moving past him. Um, so my third reaction, when you're talking about a club, I, I, you know, it reminded me of this, that I was sad that a person who loved literature so much was gone. Mm. And I think that, and that's yeah. kind of like the, the last thing that stayed with me that, you know, the, that so many writers that I consider like very vibrant and alive are kind of being picked off naturally one by one, like Toni Morrison and, and that to lose Amos, it just seems like, you know, just everything it takes to produce for a culture, to produce a writer, it just seems like we're moving further and further away from a writer who, the type of writer who style and, and tradition are incredibly important to them, but they still want to address society, look at society. And, you know, I was trying to think of like someone like Gary Steingart, who's like very, very well-read, well-published. And yes, he's a, he's a comic writer, but he seems to kind of scratch the surface for me when it comes to society. And, Mm. you know, to find writers who are, who have an incredible voice, because I think Gary Steingart does have an incredible voice, but, you know, he chooses to write, I don't know how to say this, but write small, right? Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. write provincial. So, and Amos was not one to shy away from um, society. And it's sad to think that he's gone. Yeah. And that love of literature was kind of the, I found it almost, um, I can remember being excited by that when I, you know, I read London Fields, was kind of blown away by it and the style of it. And to think, oh, here's somebody who's writing like Bello or Nabokov, but he's he's a new generation. It, it just felt very fresh and, and witty. And it was sort of exciting to think, oh, now I get to go read what he's written before. And, and yeah. And knowing that he's around and I can look forward to his next book and all of that. But then uh, reading his essays and reading the pieces he would write and seeing that he loved Nabokov and loved Bellow and loved, uh, you know, just English literature, that he would uh, talk about George Eliot or talk about Jane Austen and whether he liked it or disliked it, but it was important to him and he engaged with it. And seeing that he had studied it in college and, you know, all or university and all of this, it kind of made me feel like, you know, one of the, the people that he admired was Quentin Tarantino, who mm-hmm. was kind of uh, becoming a an icon around the same time in the 90s. And you wouldn't get that from Quentin Tarantino. You know, you'd get film, you'd get genre film, you'd get a kind of excitement about making films, but you wouldn't get him saying how important Dickens had been to him. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't. And, and so right. for somebody who was loving reading literature, an English major, it was kind of like, oh, you know, this is, this is really one of our guys. He's read all this stuff and he's engaged with it and it's important to him. And then he's got this connection with his father where his father's doing the same thing. And it just kind of gave a, a whole different, uh, I don't want to say it made it okay or cool, but he was a cool guy. 
And it did feel like, you know, it was nice that one of the things that he loved was something that I loved too. Yeah, I mean, his, I got so many recommendations from his collection of essays, The War Against Cliché mm-hmm. from 2001. And I just, like you're saying, I love the way he would, he had such a command over writers' views of each other. He was saying like Auden was shocked by Austin's celebration of the amorous effects of old money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was like, <laughs> or, you know, just saying how Nabokov, I guess, used to rag on plays that plays are like poor versions of novels. And then mm. Amos comes in and says, yeah, but Shakespeare is the exception. Mm. And also Shakespeare is the exception to basically every conceivable rule you come up with. <laughs> right. So, right. But it was, you know, you could just turn to Amos if you were in need of a book wreck. Yeah, I really like the visiting Mrs. Nabokov. His books of essays might I might enjoy more now than his novels. Yeah, I mean it's you, you also got like a you got a dose of him which sometimes was like just enough and it didn't mm-hmm. cuz you're right that he his his snarkiness his like condescension and elitism like sometimes it was a little bit too much book after book yeah like his fiction yeah and then the other thing i felt like with him was that he seemed like one of those novelists who wasn't totally he was obviously very comfortable with what he was writing and his style. But he seemed like he was trying to kind of aspire to be something that he wasn't necessarily. And I think the way I would put it, I guess, is that he was a, a writer to admire, but he wanted to be profound. Yeah. And and yet he had this thing with his style where he obviously valued style and he was his pyrotechnic style was famous and much praised and envied and so on. And he was devoted to it. And he would probably say, well, for me, you know, that is profundity is style. And, and that's as important as, as the content and so on. But I, I think it, I don't think he ever reconciled that what was so great about his style might've also made it hard for him to write a novel about the Holocaust and to take it seriously. You know, it, his his reach for profundity yeah. seemed a little bit tacked on sometimes. I but I I do I did love uh, Times Arrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I those are the, you asked me you sent me these questions in advance. Like uh, the two books I do recommend are London Fields and Times Arrow. Mm. Those were back to back, I think. Right? Oh, were they? Yeah, I think so. Wasn't Times Arrow uh, the follow up to? They were close in time anyway. Yeah. So that was when he was. Yeah, I know people say money is his best, but I never got as into that. Maybe because I read London Fields first. But for me, London Fields was always something I could go back to. And money, I think I read once and, and, and had enough of this the narrator. I feel like, yeah, I feel like money and success are, I, I get kind of parts, chunks of that already in london fields and the information and you did recommend london fields to me i i I think so um Mm -hmm. i i i have extensive notes of books i've read in since i was 18 and i noticed that i read london fields 
1993 between Frederick Exley's A Fan's Notes and uh, <laughs> uh, Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer. <laughs> so I, I do feel like it was it was your yeah yeah I can pinpoint it as well because basically I can remember it was when my roommate went to Cambridge. And then I met up with him while we were traveling, and he said, yeah, this this professor I have learned that I was interested in literature and, and said, well, have you read Martin Amos? He's our best at the moment. And mm-hmm. and so he had gotten the latest book, my roommate did, had gotten the latest book, which was London Fields, and then said, you know, oh, yeah, this is really something. You should read it. And so I got it. And then I'm thinking I probably read it and thought, oh, yeah, Mike should read this, too. <laughs> yeah and then lucky jim came after that and lucky jim is you probably value that more than any martin amos book right yeah i mean it, it was interesting i i you know i thought i had read a bunch of amos afterwards but i actually the next amos i read was lucky jim mm. mm-hmm. um and it was i think around the time i was going through a phase uh, a pretentious phase where I was only reading dead authors. So, yeah. um, and then when I re- went back to, I reread London Fields 13 years later, what had happened was I had picked up Times Arrow used, loved it. And so I, I went back to London Fields. So I think I was reading very broadly dead authors and I kind of placed in my mind london fields as the best of amos like i was i was Mm. also doing that where i would read somebody and think like okay flannery o'connor short stories that's the best of her i'm good with that right Um, so but then i think times arrow reminded me of how just how much fun he could be and how he really was pushing style i think they said that he was i forget the quote that he and nabokov were the the writer is most interested in style and form. Yeah. Yeah, writing in English. Let's take a quick break and then come back and talk more about Martin Amos and his style. Sounds good. Okay, so we're talking about Martin Amos and style. He would talk about reading Nabokov, and I remember he had a very vivid image of when he reads a book, he draws a little vertical line in the margin when he sees a particularly good sentence or phrase that he wants to remember. And he said when he reads Nabokov, he's just drawing a line straight down the margin and, you know, unbroken line down the margin. And then he said when he rereads it, he does the same thing and he ends up with basically train tracks, you know, running down the entire page on every page. And <laughs> clearly this was what he aspired to, what he wanted out of his own writing. It's it's not really like Kingsley. It's yeah. much more like Nabokov or uh, Bellow also compared mm. Martin Amos to Nabokov, wow. Joyce and Flaubert. Wow. Pretty good company. Yeah. yeah. That's like when Amos said that his father was reading success 
and found a character named Martin Amos and then threw the book against the wall <laughs> and decided never to read any of his books again. And then, and then Martin found out that his father also hated Austin mm. Dickens. He yeah. Just, so he said, pretty good company, you know. And when he got older, Kingsley Amos said he wasn't going to read any book that didn't begin with a shot rang out in the night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole, um, I mean, we'll get back to Martin style um, more directly, but the whole Kingsley versus Martin, mm -hmm. um, I, I found Lucky Jim to have this nostalgia that it's a particular type of nostalgia I love. And it's, you know, why I like Evelyn Waugh and why I like Orwell. Um, it's not sentimental, but it's this longing for the past, the good parts of the past. Yeah. That really resonates with me in a way that Martin's writing doesn't. And it's the only book that either Kingsley or Martin produced when... Kingsley was unknown. He was an up-and-comer. Mm. You know, he he was yeah. not a celebrity. He was not a famous writer. He was not, you know, and Martin could really never have that posture because he of his father. But but there is something about Lucky Jim that's a little more appealing, where it's a little more outsidery than I think Kingsley and Martin ended up being in their in subsequent books. Yeah, I mean, it's I think. Martin is very good at setting up scenes, mm -hmm. but Kingsley was the master. I mean, it was really just like, I mean, it's, I, I find it to be almost Shakespearean, his mm. comedy. Yeah. Um, when he sets people up, he manipulates the characters perfectly. Yeah. Whereas Martin, it's just kind of like Jackson Pollock, just, just splattering. Yeah. You know, which I enjoy. I mean, I, I reread re the beginning of, London Fields and yep. and the lines, the repetition and the momentum of the writing is great. This is not the very beginning, it's chapter one. It's Keith Talent was a bad guy. Keith Talent was a very bad guy. You might even say that he was the worst guy, but not the worst, not the very worst ever. There were worse guys. Where? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can imagine Kingsley just being appalled by this yeah. writing and thinking like, well, isn't that the way you sound? Why should a novel sound like the way you sound? And I think it's a really good microcosm of the way the reader, the, the reading public has changed. Mm. They do want to hear novels that sound like conversation. And this book was written in 96. I think even more it's the case is Amos was asked, what is London Field's about, and he said, it is about a novel. <laughs> that was his response. Yeah. And I think he'd be, he probably was dismayed to hear that novels now are pitched as two sentences comparing your novel to a movie. Mm. So. Right. Yeah, he used to say that people would ask him, you know, what's the novel about? And he'd just think it's got hundreds of pages and he would say it's about that and he would just point at the book you know like <laughs> right. it's like how can I why why should I summarize it when it's it's right there and it's got everything in it that I put in it not just one or two sentences of uh, summarizing it so let's talk about his style 
there was one phrase I'll never forget. He was talking about Chris Everett in one of his tennis essays, and he said she had money dignity. And it just felt like <laughs> something, I mean, it just stuck with me. I just stared at it. Money, dignity. That's so perfect for describing her. And, you know, he had, at his best, it would feel like, you know, that phrase where we only use 10% of our brains or something. It's it's like he was using 12 or 13% of his. That's how it felt sometimes, that it would, he was giving us a, a whole new way to look at the world just through language and the words and his descriptive powers. Yeah, I mean, that's, I thought of Joyce a lot when I was reading him, because, especially Ulysses, because he uses words like weapons, he uses, he jars you in this very controlled manner. I I trust Martin Amos when I'm reading one of his books, like, I Mm. just feel like, you know, these words are going to create a real effect. They won't be lazy, they won't be out of place, they won't, there won't be a, a sort of stretch where he feels like he's phoning it in like it feels like his prose is is something he's taking great care with from sentence to sentence yeah and i think it's his love of language is just the the vocabulary he uses i think the story is he wrote with an oed next to him yeah because he wanted to get the word origins right he wanted Mm -hmm. to not use words out of place uh he gave an example of a dilapidated bush. And he said, it turns out you can't have a dilapidated bush or a dilapidated hedge, you know, that it was because the <laughs> the origin refers to buildings and stone and brick. And so it would have to be a dilapidated building or wall. I'm not so sure that's right. <laughs> you know, I get what he means that maybe you wouldn't want to do it accidentally, you know, but it seems to me like if you can compare, it seems to me you could you could basically be comparing a hedge or a bush to a broken down wall, and that would be fine. But I get what he means that it's there are some words where you wouldn't realize it, but when you when you trace the origins of the words, you realize that they don't fit for the use you're trying to put them to. Yeah, I mean it, it's the awareness of levels of language. I mean he he's like a linguistics professor. I mean he. I love the way he's very aware of different registers. He learned that from Nabokov. He says, Nabokov said something like, I think like a genius. I write like a distinguished man of letters. I talk like an idiot. Mm, Right. (laughs) And, and, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, that was the kind of fiction I wanted to read. Yeah, right. Like, show me something I can't do. Right, right. like I recently read Claire Keegan's Foster, which is this 92-page novella that everyone loves, and it kind of didn't do anything for me. Mm. And it was—I think it's was because it was so spare. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I—I I was thinking, if something's this spare, I'd rather read Beckett. Right. Um, or if something is this sad, I'd rather read Monroe. And I, I just started to think of which registers I prefer. And at some point in my life, Amos's register was the pinnacle. Mm, yeah, that was that was what I wanted. Yeah. Right. So Monroe's a good example because she doesn't write at all like Amos, but she can go places that I'm not sure he could go with his style. 
Uh, yeah. You know, and I've got a, a paragraph here. So apparently one of his friends was a poet who called it Martianism. Uh, <laughs> and apparently that's an anagram of Martin Amos. Um, but it's basically the idea that your prose is explaining things on the earth as if to a space alien, you know, as if no one has ever seen this before and you have to get it exactly right. And, uh, it's important to kind of elaborate on everything that you're saying. And so the paragraph here is quote, there weren't any serpents in this garden, but there were flies in the middle distance, vague flecks of death. And then up close, armored survivalists with gas mask faces. And there were silky white butterflies and great drunken bees, throbbing orbs that seemed to carry their own electrical resonance when they collided with something solid, tree bowl, statuary, flower pot. They twanged back and away, the negative charge repelled by the positive. <laughs> End quote. And and so you do think like, oh yeah, that's perfect. He's he's getting these these insects and you know like the gas mask faces on the flies and the the way that the bees are you know. But then I don't know. <laughs> you know, like I remember a Nicholson Baker piece, I think it was, where he was talking about how John Updike had written a, an essay in the New Yorker, just a little throwaway piece. Baker's mother was brought to tears laughing at it. And Nicholas Baker said, what are you laughing at it? And she said, oh, he talks about, you know, this guy who took a golf swing and made a, a t-shirt sized divot. And <laughs> it, it, and Baker was like, oh, I've never made anyone laugh this hard. And he did it so <laughs> effortlessly. And, and it is, you know, I think a lot of writers aspire to that, to say a t-shirt sized divot. That's perfect. That's the perfect you know, rather than saying a large divot or a, a massive divot or a huge divot or you know, something like that, a t-shirt sized divot, and it would be just the right size. And Updike would have all kinds of descriptions like that. He'd describe a juicer as looking like a sombrero, and you realize that that is how a juicer looks, and you never see it the same way again. But then again, it's not profound. It can get yeah. in the way, too. And this piece, the paragraph that I read of Amos talking about the flies and their vague flecks of death and armored survivalists. And it's wonderful writing, but you read it and you think, boy, look how clever Amos is. You don't, and if you're, if the book is about the Holocaust, maybe saying, you know, the garden was filled with bees is a better way of getting that description out there so that you can take the author out of the picture a little bit and let the the plot and the characters and the scenario and the the themes have a bit more room to breathe that they're not just dominated by this style. Yeah, and I've never read Updike. I read Cheever because he's more uh, he's sadder and more mm -hmm. existentialist. Or I I read David Gates's Journey again because he's angrier. To me, Updike is like great part above average in many, many instances, but I prefer or Exley because of, you know, just how down a person can get. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of urgency to what those authors want to talk about. You're feeling that you're rising and falling with the humanity of the, the author and the characters. Alice Monroe is another one where they're kind of getting out of the way. And yeah. Updike is always kind of in the way. <laughs> and then the 
the famous criticism of him, you know, there's, he doesn't have much to say and nobody's ever said it better. <laughs> you know, there's probably people who have said something similar about Martin Amos, sadly. I think Amos is easier to recommend than Updike. I mm. mean, mm-hmm. as someone who's never read Updike, <laughs> every 10 years, I feel the urge to read the first rabbit book just to be able to weigh in better. Yeah. And then the the moment passes, the feeling passes. Well, and maybe the happy medium is Amos's big hero, Saul Bellow. Yeah. I, I do feel like there's value in Bellow even more than in Nabokov. And Amos, if he was reaching for being Saul Bellow with a, an mm-hmm. energetic style, an exuberance, that's probably as good as Amos was going to get. Yeah, I mean, it's his view of the working class and money, I mean, is, I think, I think something that, I don't want to say many writers weren't writing about it, but I think many writers, there were a few literary books about American obsessions, like money at the time. And he tackled friendship mm. you know, and the information in a way that was almost like a throwback. I, I think his books really were his inquiries into America. Mm-hmm. And I, I found that part very fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that clearly was one of his key, maybe obsessions is the right word, is kind of the relationship between England and America and his vantage point on both. He sort of had a window into both and and trying to get his mind around America, I think, was a big part of uh, what he wanted to do in his books and wanted to do in his life. Yeah, yeah. I have tried to read some other books by Amos. I, I remember reading the Rachel Papers, his first novel, and reading Julian Barnes's Metroland at the same time, which is a similar type of young twenties novel, and much preferring Barnes's book because mm. it was, you know, I found the Rachel Papers to be a little juvenile and silly. Mm-hmm. I always felt he didn't compare real well with Ian McEwan either. That. McEwen seemed to, his works, his earliest works are a bit sophomoric, but then he seemed to be growing up in a way that Amos didn't seem to be to me. Yeah, but I, when I do my battle of best book, it's it's tough because I, I love Enduring Love by McEwen, but London Fields will always hold a mm. very sentimental spot in my heart. So, Right, right. One other thing I wanted to mention before we wrap things up, we mentioned him using the Oxford English Dictionary. He also had a really interesting take on using a thesaurus, which he said he did almost constantly. And there's a real stigma about using a thesaurus. And there's sort of this view that for some reason we can't seem to shake, which is that any writer who uses a thesaurus is basically a fourth grade kid who wants to sound (laughs) smart and is looking for big, long words that they don't really know how to use or something. And and Amos, you know, he cast that aside. And he basically said that the reason why the writer reaches for the thesaurus, getting the sounds right Mm. and avoiding infelicities of sound. And he was saying... It's to avoid the inadvertent rhymes and accidental alliteration and repetition of prefixes and suffixes. And he gave the example of Nabokov, who had the book. His first title was Invitation to an Execution. Mm, and then Nabokov yeah. said, no, no, that, that can't be because 
the two words are too close with the ending of T-I-O-N. So he changed it to invitation to a beheading. And Amos would do the same. He would look up at this. He would use the thesaurus to try to find the right sounding words to go into the sentence together. I think I learned a lot from reading him as, you know, in my own writing. I, mean, I remember hearing an interview where he said, if your sentence has the word confirm, you shouldn't have the word convex. Mm-hmm. The prefix rings. He said, just like alliteration rings unnecessarily, unless you intend to, prefixes and suffixes can ring. And I, I thought that was like a really good insight to something that, you know, all a lot of writers do naturally, but when they miss on that, it does ring, it, it clangs. And so I feel like whether he'll stand the test of time, he always called time the great reviewer. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, London Fields will be taught in schools, and I see that it, it has been taught at Columbia in their fiction class. And mm. it might be kind of like a Dickens-type book on London and England. Where you're you're reading it, because you want a dose of that period in history as well. Yeah. I mean, it, what was going on in the late 80s and early 90s? I'll read London Fields to to get it from an author who was there and taking it on and putting it into fiction. Yeah, and also just the the kind of postmodern novel, the form of it, just the jarring voices, the different points of view and I I think Keith Talent is the yeah. Dickensian character. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the the porn watching and the curry eating and the, you know the darts, the darts. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. So I I wanted to say that preparing for this, I I picked up his novel Inside Story, mm. which which I heard is basically like the second installment of Experience. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I want to read some of those later works that I missed, and I also I've been enjoying watching a lot of old interviews with him. Uh, I always enjoy him. But the one thing that makes me kind of sad is that so much of the interviews Mm -hmm. that he gives, he's in a kind of, necessarily in a kind of deflective posture. And because he gets asked the same things over and over, and and there are things for him to be, he's defensive about, because they come at him kind of like criticism, where it'll be... Do you feel like you never were taken seriously because you were a famous writer's son? Or do you feel like the prize committees have treated you unfairly over the years? And so he's gracious and he's generous and he'll give it back and he'll stand up for himself and so on. But it did kind of make me wish that he didn't have to be in that position all the time, that it seemed like the interviewers in preparing were basically saying, oh, Here's somebody I don't want to just ask things of. I want to ask him about, I'm going to assume that he's bitter. I'm going to assume that he's resentful. And I'm going to ask him to explain and kind of assume that that's the position he's going to take. And so it ended up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. Even back then, everything was geared toward controversy and a soundbite. And so they, they, they didn't give him, I think you're right, they didn't give him the room to really talk about what he felt passionate about that that he was given a forum instead they came at him with an agenda like here's the controversy yeah you know feed the fire like and it's unfortunate i mean he he was on letterman they allotted him six minutes i was like that's appalling but then i thought (laughs) 
which writer could be on Stephen Colbert today? I mean, I'm not sure a literary writer has been yeah. on Stephen Colbert. I have to look it up. But Oh, you know who was? Is your guy, George Saunders. Ah, Yeah, okay. there's a good interview of, of him. But yeah, I know what you mean. It felt even then like Colbert was having to kind of wink at his audience and say, trust me, this is going to be good. And don't worry, he's a writer, <laughs> but it's, you know, I'll, I'm going to make this okay or something. And that Letterman having Amos on, it was really refreshing. It reminded me of when writers like that would go on Johnny Carson and it was, or Dick oh, Cavett. God, and it was just, right. it was just normal. Here's a guy who's written a book and let's ask him about what he sees in the world today and politics and other things and, and his trip and trip to the States. And it was, it was very refreshing because yeah. you know that there's sort of this famous question of when did you stop beating your wife and people you know, there's no way to answer that and with amos it seems like the interviewers would sort of say why do you think you're so misunderstood or <laughs> why do you think you know why do you think there's so much criticism of you coming from all different directions and what how's somebody supposed to answer that you know well i think Without saying, like, I think they're all just jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Anything else? I guess you would tell people to give London Fields a try if they haven't read it or haven't read it in a while. Uh, any other last thoughts on Martin Amos? Um, I think now that he's dead, you're, I'm free to read him. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a, that's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, and some of his books are getting to be almost uh, 50 years old, which is my little guideline for myself that I like reading things oh, that are at I least like 50 years old. Yeah, so his his earliest stuff is kind of reaching that moving yeah. wall. I, I If people are also curious about reading about his life because the father-son mm -hmm. thing is fascinating, I think you mentioned it, but experience is a mm -hmm. wonderful book. And yeah. I, I enjoyed it a lot more than the Bokoff's, what's his memoir? Uh, Speak Memory. Speak Memory, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Martin Amos writing about his father is always very interesting and, and even very beautiful and touching. And he was asked a lot about yet another thing. I've heard that Kingsley can't finish your books or he, he doesn't read your books. And, and Martin would say, well, he read one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then he would give that line about, you know, he doesn't like to read anything that doesn't begin with a shot rang out in the dark. But in one interview I saw, he sa he also said, you know, I think it's natural for us to revere the writers who are older than us and who came before us. And it's also natural to resent the writers who are coming after us and to feel <laughs> like those writers are crowding us off the stage. And he said, it's natural that I valued the books of my father more than he values the books of mine because of that, which makes a lot of sense. And it, it does ring true to me that that is a kind of, not just with literature, but with music and everything, you know, I'll have this reverence for songwriters who are a generation ahead of me. And then when they're younger than me, I'm kind of roll my eyes and, oh, what is this person now? And yeah, that tune's okay, but the lyrics are, are kind of sophomoric. And it's not really fair. There's no reason why, you know, I should be privileging Prince and, and the Beatles and people who are older any more than Taylor Swift or anyone like that. I'm sure it's just as good. But it is this feeling of 
Well, if they came before me, I can look up to them, even though I'm now older than a lot of them actually even live to be. You know, they're they're probably people who were in their 20s, just like Taylor Swift. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you have to admire the the passion of the younger generation, mm -hmm. but but it's also it's also very threatening, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, they are coming for us, and they're <laughs> they're going to replace us. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, Martin Amos, may he rest in peace. Mike Palindrome, thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. We have Langston Hughes coming up soon and Comics, the World of Comics, with an academic who specializes in the world of comics. And we have some Henry James on the horizon. And what else? Fairy Tales by a true devotee of fairy tales who's devoted his life to fairy tales. Giorgio Vasari is coming up soon. And Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night. Is that book even greater than The Great Gatsby? My, we will see, I guess. <laughs> Different? Better? Maybe? We will see. My thanks to Mike Palindrome for joining me today. We will be back, people. Lots more literature dis to discuss. I've been getting uh, requests for Emile Zola. I'll try to work that in. And I've been reading Coetza and Herman Hesse. Speaking of returns to the 1990s, well, Coetza anyway, and Hesse is someone I used to read in the 1990s, so that sort of counts in my mind, right? Right. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.